is Adam Lippi, writer, editor, publisher of RegrettableSincerity.com, and this is a podcast Q&A with the cast and crew of Conviction, director Tony Goldwyn, actor Sam Rockwell, and the subject of the film, Betty Ann Waters, who is played by Hilary Swank in the movie. Now, it's a pretty standard Q&A. There were seven or eight reporters in the room. However, recently I got a complaint about uh, using uh, someone else's questions. I'm not really sure why, but because we all use each other's questions. And it's not like they didn't know there was a tape recording. So what I've done is I've replaced every single other reporter with um, a really terrible impression of Alan Arkin and uh, asking the same questions that they would have, but paraphrased so it's not exactly the same. So I hope you enjoy that, apart from all the facts and nuggets that you will learn about uh, conviction. Although you should note, one of the most interesting things is something that Sam Rockwell let slip where he, under his breath, sort of says, I, I still really like the reshoots. There's a whole thing in the movie that's, there's a compromise feeling. So look out for that. Tony starts with my question to Tony Goldwyn about his actual acting performance in the remake of The Last House on the Left. Enjoy. Do you mind if I ask a quick question? Please. I, I, wanna, I always like to get the absurd questions out of the way. And I always have absurd questions? Yeah, 10 okay. absurd questions I write down. The first was, it, this is sort of on, on how to operate a microwave. Oh, uh, I see where this is going. You do see this, this is going. Okay. I have never seen anyone use a microwave with a door open, but I had wondered if part of the reason that you agreed to that was to perhaps get this finance? I'm sorry, agreed to what, to the microwave? Uh, the last, well, to, to do, do the house? Yeah. Why, because it was so terrible? No, 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 like as in, it was, uh, you don't, you haven't been acting a lot lately. Right. And so I figured part of, part of it might, might have been like a, a deal of some sort to... No, it had nothing to do with it. Okay, I was just curious. Different, totally different job, yeah. Talk about the movie. <laughs> no, it was, I mean, there was... They were, they were unrelated. Okay. That, that was just well, it is about the movie, movie, sort of. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Um, and, and whose idea was the microwave? Because that made me laugh, that scene. But. Um, I'm, I guess uh, the writers of, of that screenplay. Yeah, okay. I think so. Yeah, it was, it was a tongue-in-cheek. I assume so. Wes yeah. Craven type piece of silliness. Like, yes. Yeah, macabre silliness. I don't think you could actually... No, no, I, I, when I saw that, and then, and then when, when they started advertising it in the trailer, I'm like, are people going to realize, like, the first hour and 45 minutes is, like, dead serious and yeah, right. brutal? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, that, that, um, I just didn't know what <laughs> Which, after you direct a movie, is a movie to be able to just do what you're told. <laughs> You've directed episodes of Justified Dexter Damages. How is it different directing TV compared to a movie? It's very different. Directing television is like a workout, really. For me. I started doing it because it's very difficult to get movies made. And I mean, if you direct a movie every couple of years, you're a prolific director. You know, I've not been directing that long. And uh, when I was asked to direct television, I thought I'd give it a shot. And the, the time pressure you have is so, you have so little time to do it. It's like one of the gyms, director. You have, you have a very limited shooting schedule. You have to get it. You just I, to me, it's a technical exercise. Yeah. Particularly, if, it's no fun if you're not working on good material, but working on good writing, like the shows you mentioned. You know, you have a real oh, yeah, opportunity exactly. to go in and make a really good hour of television with great writing and great actors, and you have usually about eight days to shoot it, and you just only cutting room for about four days. And it's a kind of a different. There's many similarities, but at the end of the day, it's also not your responsibility. You turn it over to the producers and they're the ones that are the deciders, whereas in the 
I'm sitting here, you know, in a feature film with the director is the decider of everything. And it's a much bigger, I use it as kind of exercise to keep myself in shape, yeah. What do you feel is your personal stamp you bring to a movie as a director? You know, maybe the films that I have done have had a commonality of style because they all tended to be somewhat intimate character studies, you know. And I look at television that I've directed where I'm showing up to, uh, to service that, where the style might be much different, you know, I will adapt to that. The material drives it, however, my style tends to be, the way I would define it so far, the thing that I tend to adhere to is I never want my work to be front and center. I don't, I feel like I'm, I would rather the directing be more invisible, you know, stylistically, so that it's about that the characters feel very, very real and that the world feels very real and that I'm not creating a style that's between the audience and the characters. You know, that doesn't mean you might not do some really cool shot, but it has, to, for me, it would, it would have to be organically motivated and serve a real storytelling purpose. Whereas some directors just are incredible stylists and they create a whole visual style that has a, a whole life of its own. You know, that's just not how my brain works, maybe because I'm, I'm an actor first, you know. So so that that would be the, the common, uh, you know, so that's what I would typically bring to it. You know, like I mean, there's directors that I, my sort of directing hero would be like Mike Nichols, who I, I sort of, his work, I, I find like that's always very much about the people. You know, and yet some of his films have incredible style, but it always feels very un unadorned to me, right? very like it's about people uh, and, and, the, and the heart of it. Uh, so he's someone who I uh, idolize in that way. A lot of Hollywood movies are described as too good to be true. In this particular case, the facts are just so cruel that an audience might have a hard time believing it. How do you get the audience to believe that this really happened? Because uh, it's all about the people. What drew me to this story first was not the outrageousness of the story, but I was moved by the relationship between Betty Ann and Kenny. So when I first heard about this on the news, it wasn't what you would naturally, conventionally think, oh, this is a great idea for a movie. Look at what this woman did. What blew my mind was I thought this woman spent 18 and a half years on an act of faith. And what is that about? Uh, you know, and, and, and what is that relationship that she had so much faith in her brother? I thought, if, what if he was guilty? He could, he could have been guilty. What if he was, what if she, even if he was innocent, what if she, Sam Rockwell is, hey, uh, what, what if, what if she'd been unsuccessful in getting him out and could never find a way and he spent his life in prison? Would her faith in him have been in vain? And for me, the answer was no. So to me, you know, that was at the heart of the film for me of, of this love story between a brother and a sister. So it had an emotional core to me, and that, that's what it's about. It's about the transcendence of love. You know, I, I didn't really have an interest in making a great legal drama or a courtroom drama, which is not, not really, you know, but that, that wasn't the appeal to me, although I find that appealing, that's sort of really interesting and extraordinary and fascinating. But the emotional entry point is the two of them. And that, I think, is how you draw an audience in. And, you know, back to in this case, stranger than fiction. We can't make this stuff up, and we didn't. But I don't need an audience to know that it's true, because it has to stand on its own as a work of drama, whether it's true or not. If you're going to make a movie of it, or I should make a documentary. Sam, did you have to have a certain amount of faith in the system, that the system would prevail in the end? It was much more dismal than that. <laughs> uh, no, I, I uh, had to sort of not have faith, actually. 
in order to play the first three quarters. At least the first three quarters of the movie. You know, I mean, I have faith in my sister in the film. You know, in in, uh, in Betty Ann, Hilary Swank's character. I, I I have to have faith in her, and she's really the only thing I have. And, and, I, and I think that's pretty accurate. You played a CIA assassin in Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Did that give you a perspective on how the government works? Uh, well, you know, that was a little more surreal. That was kind of a Clouseau uh, CIA agent. <laughs> the research I did in the Green Mile helped more prison stuff. So thanks for mentioning that. <laughs> What's your favorite scene in the movie? Why don't we ask Betty Ann? Yeah. What's your favorite scene in the movie? That's a good question. I mean, besides the release day, I mean, mm -hmm. obviously that was the favorite part. When you watched the movie. Oh, when I watched it. Did we get Hey, that's one of my favorite scenes. Isn't it? I mean, it, because everything else is like, um, it's dramatic and it's sad. That part makes, it brought uh, a different kind of tear to my eye. <laughs> it, it was like real justice for, because Juliet Lewis looked just like Roseanne, acted just like her. Well, her, her, Parts were taken from actual transcripts. That's how she talks, and that's the kind of person she was. So um, I can't wait for Rosie to see the movie. I, I've been thinking about my favorite scenes. I, I would say, yeah, I'm gonna say, even though I'm very proud of the narration. Actually, funny enough, well, I love the scenes with the little kids. First of all, the, the scenes in the police. I mean, the, the scenes break my heart, and I love Juliet Lewis in that scene. There's so many scenes. The scene where, where Hillary just drops to the ground. You know, there's a wide shot of her. It's beautiful. It just tells the story. It's beautiful, and Hillary has so many amazing moments in the scene. But but uh, the scene I'm actually most proud of, and it was surprisingly, was the scene where we didn't have two cameras for coverage. The first scene, the first after scene. Kenny has tried to commit suicide, he comes in, and, and that scene, the one that we recorded, actually, yeah. for some reason, I was really really impressed with uh, yeah. on, on both sides. You know, I thought it was a, a really great scene. I mean, I, it's hard for me to pick a favorite scene. I love the whole, you know, it's all one to me. I, uh, but I, I had to pick one. It probably be the same one. Sam said, I, you know, I watched that and I just think their performances are so great. It's a very simple scene, but it's so honest. I think they both do incredible work in that, in that scene. But yeah, that's a hard one. Where'd you get the energy to keep going for 18 years? I have to say, I think my brother. I think, I think I got it from him. He, my brother always had faith in me since we were children. He always thought I could do anything. And he always made me feel that way. And uh, in this case, he told me I could go to law school and become his lawyer and get him out of prison. <laughs> Betty Ann, obviously this would be very stressful on you. How did you put this whole plan together? Well, it was stressful me. I took each hurdle one at a time. The first thing I did was enroll in a community college, which kept his faith going. So I didn't know where I was going to go from there. So I just took one step at a time. Betty Ann, you didn't actually go to law school when you got your graduate degree. You got a master's in education. Well, I thought the whole goal was to get Kenny out of prison by becoming a lawyer. But what, what was the reasoning behind that? I, I took one extra year because I became a divorced woman. I was married when I started. I have two children. And the nearest law school from Rhode Island at that time was in Boston. And I lived in East Greenwich, Rhode Island, which meant commuting an, at least an hour and a half one way, or three hours a day. And I didn't even know when I started community college that you, when you start law school, you start with your class and you finish with your class. It's eight hours a day. It's not a class here, a class there. I didn't even know that much about law school. 
So I could not possibly have commuted three hours a day with two children to Boston. So I figured I'll get a, a teaching degree and be able to go to Boston nights and weekends. So that took one extra year. But then Roger Williams opened in Rhode Island. So I got into that law school and didn't have to worry about commuting to Boston. The search for the evidence. How close to the truth was that, or did you guys uh, dramatize it? That, that was pretty accurate. What happened was I was hoping to get Barry Sheck to help me earlier than I did because I was afraid that if the authorities in Massachusetts knew that I became Kenny's lawyer and was looking for his evidence that somehow it would be destroyed or lost, and I couldn't wait any longer. So I had friends of mine call, and I would call also and say I was somebody else, and that I was doing uh, a paper, and it was on the Waters case. And so I kept calling and calling and calling until Mrs. Halloran got sick of people calling, and she did go look for the evidence. And that seeing them finding the evidence, that's all true with the paper on the box. And, because in Massachusetts, they don't have uh, DNA preservation statute. So even to this day, it can be destroyed. Uh, every other state has one except Massachusetts. And they don't have a DNA statute that gives prisoners access to DNA evidence if it can prove their innocence. So maybe that scene was very true. In fact, when we were on set, we had Betty Ann actually put the box together the exactly the way it was. Mark, our designer, had created the stationery that was exactly like Betty Ann's stationery, but she actually wrote, I wrote all over it all over, you know, what is it, what is the, you know. Do not destroy, uh, this evidence is going to be used for post-conviction relief. Right, and she signed her own name, Betty Ann Waters, so that was all her, exactly as it was, um, the, uh, in the real thing. Tony, I heard you on NPR this morning promoting the film, and you mentioned that, that there was, you had to find a balance between the truth and dramatic license, mm -hmm. and one of the key things that was left out of the film is that Kenny died six months after mm -hmm. he uh, got out of prison. Mm -hmm. How was that? Was that one of those exclusions where you thought, well, it would seem like a letdown, or...? Um, well, to put it simply, yes, but there was a very long process to come to that decision. I originally really wanted to put it in, and, and it was in the script for a long time, uh, because I felt two things. I felt a certain obligation to the truth, but more than that, the movie to me is, a, is about the transcendent power of love. As I, I said to Betty Ann once, you know, not long after we had met, she was talking to Pam and I, and, and this was not too long after Kenny's death, and we'd spent you know, several days talking, and, and we were talking a lot about Kenny, and, and, and she was grieving, and she was crying, and I said, you know, Betty Ann, whether Kenny lived for six months or six years or 60 years after he experienced something that most people don't in their entire lives, and that's the knowledge that you're so completely, deeply loved and known by another human being. So he, that was an incredible gift, and he died, you know, a happy man because of that, and a rich man because of that, whether, however long he lived. And I felt that so strongly that I wanted, I felt it was like a challenge dramatically to see, can I tell this story with that conclusion and still have the audience feel that? That I know this is tragic, but I'm left with her at the end, and we wrote it this way, where she was at the lake actually alone. <laughs> and the way we had it in the script was you had this terrible, tragic death, and then you had Betty Ann alone, and she was remembering this scene, which is currently the end scene of the movie, where they were talking at the lake, and she remembered, and what, so I thought, will that be deeply moving and powerful? But people that read the script were absolutely devastated by it, and they couldn't recover. They, they thought it was obviously emotionally powerful, but they 
were not, I kept having to explain myself, go, yeah, but what it's really about is this. They say, wow, it's great, but oh my God, you know, <laughs> oh my God, it's so depressing. And I said, no, it's not because it's, it's, it's actually spiritually uplifting and that's what life is. And you know, you get, it doesn't matter what life throws at you. You have this, you have everything and people weren't getting it. So I thought to think long and hard about whether I wanted to make this movie with that scene in it. And I, and, um, I, I called Hillary up who had committed to that script, and I said, you know, how would you feel if I took it out? And she said, well, you know, I love that scene, but it's not what the movie's about, is it? It really isn't what the movie's about. So I understand what people are saying. And I said, you're right, it's not. And so I ended up taking it out, and we thought, well, maybe we could put it on the information at the end, the crawl. And uh, we tried that. So that, you know, the end the information that we have at the end, we had what's happened to Betty Ann, and some of them said, and tragically, this terrible thing happened to Kenny. Same reaction. Audiences were just like, what? Oh, whoa. And it yanked them out. And there'd be a couple of people in every audience we screened it for who would say, wow, that was amazing. I'm so glad I knew that. But 98% of the audiences that we screened it for said, you just ruined the movie for me. I, I couldn't. I was feeling so much. And then that. And I suddenly, it became all about that to me. And it's not, as Betty Ann says, the movie's not about Kenny's death, it's about Kenny's freedom. And, and more than that, for me, it's really about the power of the love between these two people. It's a love story, you know, and it's not a love story where she actually died. So anyway, that was a very long thought process. So it wasn't a, quite as simple as saying, mm, this will be a downer. You know, that's what I was resisting, actually, because people would say that, I go, yeah, don't be so, you know, mainstream. I don't, you know, it is a painful movie, and... That's a good thing, but uh, ultimately it shouldn't. I love the way it ended. Yeah. And, Kenny, and you were Kenny, very happy when Kenny I took it out. Kenny would be very proud that it ended this yeah. way because it was about his freedom. Right. So I'm yeah. very happy. Sam, did playing this role linger with you in a spiritually uplifting way? I got that when I saw the film for the first time in Toronto. I got that kind of feeling, a kind of euphoric feeling from seeing the film. But as an actor, I was, you know, no, I was when I was doing it, it wasn't like that. It was miserable. I was in it. <laughs> in the shit, as they say. But it was still fun in, in, a, in a hard-working, sweat-and-tears kind of way. What interested you about the role? Well, it's a great part, you know. It's like, it's got everything, you know. It's got, he's, 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 it's got it all. It's got every, everything you want to do, you know. That's not very articulate, but what is it about that part? I don't know, you get to do... Well, he's got, he's got, he's so multi... I mean, so he's got so many opposites, Kenny. He's a man of opposites. He's, you know, that first scene uh, when you meet him in the, in the bar tells you everything about Kenny. He's, he adores his child. He's devoted to this little baby, and he's bringing him to the bar. <laughs> but he's dancing with his baby and love him. And then out of nowhere, he gets into a violent altercation with somebody, and then he becomes a clown and charms everyone in the whole place, and everyone loves him, and he takes his clothes off. You know, that is just so... That duality that in Kenny is that's pretty like yeah that's fun stuff. To, it's fun. It's we've been talking fun. about this for a very long time too, Sam and I. Can I over the years? So, sorry. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, why did you choose Hilary Swank and what did she bring to the film? Well, I'll take that one first. For, for me, you know, Betty Ann. Here's what was extraordinary to me when I was surprising to me when I met Betty Ann. Having heard the, ba the basics of the story enough to get me interested in doing it. I was driving up to meet her, and I, I imagined, oh, given all that she'd suffered and struggled and prevailed over, that I was going to meet a very outwardly tough woman who uh, I 
was alone, ready to be a little intimidated by her. You know, someone who wore her scar, or you know, sort of had an armor to her, and was a salty, tough, kind of like, don't mess with me type woman. Kind of like, I sort of, maybe because Aaron Brockovich was sticking in my head of that type of a, a you know, woman who, who, and then the door opened, and here's Betty Ann, who is this bright light, just this sweet, humble, funny, super smart, but completely modest person, and what you get most from Betty Ann is her heart. And um, I thought that was extraordinary, and I fell in love with her immediately, and was like, oh my God, of course, that she's all about love. It was hard to get her to admit that she'd done anything extraordinary, because she's like, I just did what, what anybody else would do. I just had to, had to tell my brother. That's it. I didn't do anything, really. So that said, I, w I realized that was the heart <coughs> of this film, and I needed an actress who had that in her essence, and yet who had the steel spine and lion's heart that this woman has. And you don't need to prove that to anybody. And there are very few actresses who have that ability to struggle and fight without losing their purity, I guess, their, their, their heart. And Hillary has that exact quality uh, as, an, as an actress and as a human being. She's all heart. And that's what drives her with it. Even in Million Dollar Baby, when you think about that, you know, she's playing a, a violent boxer, and yet she was this innocent girl who just wanted a box. That's all she wanted. She just fell at home in that ring, and that's when she was at peace. And yet she was in a violent thing. And so when I saw that movie, I said, that's Betty Ann. And I, I honestly can't think of another actress who embodies that. There was a different actress originally attached to this, who I, who I you know, before I ever saw Million Dollar Baby, who chased the part and is a brilliant actress. But I think who would have played Betty Ann in a much darker way, a much, you know, would have been more about Betty Ann suffering and, you know, would have been a, a heavy thing. And, and not that that would have been bad, but it wouldn't have been Betty Ann. So that, to me, was what, that, that fierceness, it's a very unique kind of fierceness that Hilary Swank and Betty Ann Waters both share. I don't know how you guys feel about it. Yeah, I, I, that's my spiel. I, that's great. I, I can second that, you know. Everything Tony just said is right on. I mean, Hillary's one of my favorite actors, so... But, you know, people are sort of saying, oh, it's like Aaron Brockovich. Or, but it's actually more comparable to it's more of a, a sort of straightforward, dramatic version of the character that Francis McDormand played in Fargo, in a way, because, or, or, or Silkwood, because it's, it's someone Silkwood, yeah. you might underestimate, that's someone being right here, because they're a nice person. So you go, oh, well, they, you, you might underestimate them. And then, but, but Tony's right, there's this steel spine there. So don't underestimate them. And, and I think that's what Hillary, that juxtaposition is what Hillary was able to capture. And it's one of the most vulnerable kind of maternal parts I've ever seen mm -hmm. Hillary do. You know, she has a, a, a softer, a soft side that I haven't seen before in this. Mm -hmm. And I think she is uniquely qualified, you know, for this, for all the, all the aspects of this character. I said, you know, I said that because you're, you're sitting right here. <laughs> um, I have to say about Hillary is, I don't have anything to do with Hollywood and casting her, but she would have been my first pick. I saw Boys Don't Cry and Million Dollar Baby, and I just loved her in it. And when I met her, the, I'll tell you just two quick stories. The first time I met her, she came to my house. I opened the door, and Tony was with her, and Sam was already there. We had the same outfit on. She had uh, this black turtleneck ribbed sweater on, <laughs> jeans, and black boots. And I'm like, it was like I knew her for the longest time. She came in, I made her breakfast. She's looking for fig jam in the refrigerator. You know, it was like, it was great. And then another scene that I'll never forget is during filming, and we were filming the day that Kenny was released.
and she was crying her eyes out. And she came over to me, and she's saying, you know, there's, everybody says there's a good side to everything bad that happens, but I don't get it. There is no good side to what happened to Kenny. And I had to console her. You know, I mean, that's how compassionate she was. So those two things will always stick up in my mind. Did she get the accent right away? Oh, my God, yeah, I feel bad for her. She, has, she, <laughs> and she, she sent her dialect coach to my house for, like, two hours and taped me for two hours and was constantly listening to me. So I think she did get it. I, I feel bad that she had to talk like me, but... <laughs> she memorized the entire two-hour tape. She That's did. how she learned the accent before she ever worked on the script. Right, before she ever met me. She'd work every day with her dialect coach on the Benny right. Williams. She's, she's fierce. Yes. She works hard, that girl. No joke. One night, she jumped into the van after working, uh, I don't know, 12 hours one day, and she usually has her old van take her to her trailer. But she was so tired, she jumped in mine. With, I had some family members there. And it was dark, and you know, there was a lot of seats in the van. And somebody's talking, and they're saying all those things were on the tape. And my nephew thought it was me. He's saying, why am I not? Tell me that stupid place. story about the dog. <laughs> kids, I mix up their names all the time. Richard and Ben. I'm like, Richard, Ben, no, Richard. And she's doing that. And I say, why is she doing that? And they realized it was Hillary talking. You know, and she did the same thing at the restaurant. Yeah. She was talking, and somebody thought I was talking, and it was Hillary. So I guess she did get flying. <laughs> Well, thank you, everybody. They have to catch a train, so they're afraid of that. Thank you. I did a little reading on the case, but yeah, I, know, found yeah, I couldn't find much yeah. about Kenny's death. And since in the film, and I don't know if that's true, there's a whole thing about whether it was there, the, the cops were against him. Was there was the death like mysterious or just an accident? Okay.